Well, I heard that the Houghton Academy students had a special week where it's some special classes. And one of them, they, the students who volunteered for the class painted pictures with Bob Ross, the happy TV painter. You know, the one with the afro. And it's a nice little tree and it's a nice little cloud. Have you ever, maybe some of you have never seen Bob Ross. Uh, so it's kind of fun to try to make a copy of his picture and you look at yours and you say, man, it doesn't look anything like his, right? Th maybe, maybe some of yours did. Um, actually, copying pictures is very, very serious work. When my mother Aileen was in art school, the New York Academy of Design uh, studied for seven years there. When you become an advanced portrait paint painter, they give you the keys to the, well, I don't know about the keys, but with all kinds of documents, you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and get to sit there for hours when others aren't around and copy the great masters. They feel that's a good way to learn. Look at their strokes, look at the painting. So she did that. And I grew up with one of her paintings in the, next to the hamper in our hall, hall in our house. It was a great big Rembrandt. And it looked just like the real deal. It was perfect Rembrandt. Imagine that, growing up with a Rembrandt uh, next to your clothes hamper. And uh, there it was. And I think it's actually now hanging or behind a closet in the Stevens Art Studio. Somebody will have to verify that for me, the copy. And on the back, of course, it has big stencil letters, copy. You've got to be careful. But actually, something funny happened over the years. Uh, the art curators wanted to check out what was that painting really like, so they took all the chemicals and they cleaned the old Rembrandt painting, the original, and there were faces that appeared in there that weren't there in the, in the copy. So if you look at my mother's copy now and you look at the original, there's a lot of difference between them. But actually, Houghton College, if they hadn't done that, they could have gone and sold my mother's Rembrandt and paid for the rest of the... Are you listening, Carl? It's up there still. <laughs> Yeah, copies and originals. My aim today as we enter the season of Sundays leading up to Easter is that with the help of the Holy Spirit we can uncover new truths from the Word that apply to our lives as we seek to actually copy the life of Jesus. See if you get that in our text today. When we look at the cross, it nearly, it's nearly impossible to understand all the depth and the riches. We sing about it a lot and the meaning of his death. And we certainly don't feel like we can compare our lives to his. And yet the disciples of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, he calls us to mirror his life and his death, his cross in our lives. So we get a glimpse of this in Matthew chapter 16 with Jesus, with his disciples, past the Lake of Galilee uh, in the area called Caesarea Philippi. And sometime before his final journey down to Jerusalem, maybe a year. But he has some shocking surprises for these disciples. Now just go back with me if you have your Bibles, a little bit before where we started to read, but in Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus is asking them, who do people say that I am? People have been around Jesus a couple years, been watching him, listening to him. Who do they say I am? And the disciples spit out the various answers. And then he says, what about you? 
what about you? What do you think? Who do you think I am? And good old Peter, the A student on the front row, nails it. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Good for you, Peter. Then verse 21, where our reading began with Dr. Young, it's like an explosion. Boom! Out of the air comes this first shock. And it's the first of three clear announcements by Jesus as he was getting closer to Jerusalem that he was not going to be the victorious, triumphant, conquering Messiah riding on a white horse with his disciples as his lieutenants and his bodyguards to clean up the Romans and set up his earthly kingdom. What a shock. Instead, he must suffer and be killed and rise again. The cross was to come before the crown. And good old Peter, he doesn't like this. And he blurts out, never, no way, Lord. Whenever I hear that, I think of the paper that I think Dr. Woolsey wrote when he was giving a lecture on Acts chapter 10, the great ministry to the Gentiles, where Peter also cried out, no, Lord, don't let me eat that meat. Don't let me go to the Gentiles. Have you ever thought how strange it is how sometimes we say Lord and no at the same time, Dr. Woolsey told us? Lord, no. How can you do that? So maybe there's a little lesson there. Peter goes from the A student to get behind me, Satan. But why this misunderstanding? Because the cross actually was the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation, the very centerpiece of Jesus' mission. Listen, Messiahship meant the cross for him. Messiahship meant the cross for Jesus. He said he came to give his life a ransom for many. And later he said in the Gospel of John, you see this, I, if I be lifted up on a cross, I will draw all men unto myself. One of my old favorite commentators, Michael Green from Britain, in his book, The Empty Cross of Jesus, says, it's as if messiahship, which Peter proclaimed, with its triumphalistic notions, needed translating into a different language, the language of suffering and then vindication. He had not come to be a political or religious messiah. He had come to give his life for others, end quote. The cross, the death of Jesus, some of which we've sung about here, lies at the heart of the good news, the gospel, we call it. It's puzzling. It even seems crazy, very almost repugnant to those, to the world, to those who, like for Peter at that moment, don't get it. And there are many who don't get it today. But the Apostle Paul proclaims and exclaims in the book of Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God unto salvation and the wisdom of God. So Isaac Watts, old hymn from the 18th century, which Judy was playing in the prelude, when I survey the wondrous cross, encourages us, even during this Lenten season, and I encourage you, to ponder the cross and the meaning of the cross. See from his head, his hands, his side. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. 
Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns, thorns compose so rich a crown? Now, other verses in this hymn I'm going to come to, and it reminds me of Paul's conclusion to his letter to the Galatians, where he expresses the connection of the cross to us. Listen to Paul. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Chew on that a while. I'll, I'll repeat it. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My first encounter with a Muslim friend in Houghton, he came to visit our college with other international students back in the day. And the one thing that was repugnant to him was the cross of Jesus Christ. He said, no, 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 no. That has nothing to do with me. So now, are you ready for the second big shock? I said there were two. In our story in Matthew chapter 16, it's like another explosion. Boom! Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, his cross is one thing. Our cross? Messiahship meant a cross for him. Discipleship means a cross for us. Now, I've always puzzled what that meant, take up your cross. And this week, some new things came to me. It's the question of the day. What is our cross? What does it mean to take up our cross and follow Jesus? All of us who want to be his disciples. What does it mean when Paul says early in Corinthians, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Is it, you know, struggle with this over, I always thought, well, maybe it's a thorn in the flesh kind of thing. That's my cross that I have to bear. I have a bad knee, you know. I bear my bum knee. That's a real cross, you know. It might be a cranky boss. You know, I have to go to the office every day, and there's that cranky boss. That's my cross. I have to bear my cross. It could be illness and suffering. Many people linger with long illnesses. But so do non-Christians. Is that our cross? In high school, I never played a starting round of basketball. I sat the bench the whole blooming time. I was lucky if I got one minute when everything was trash or out the door. Put Paul Shea in. He won't hurt anything now. <laughs> was that my cross that I bore in high school? You know, we have so many things we're so, so sympathetic to ourselves about. It's like in Matthew 16, the disciples know what a cross is, and they're looking at Jesus or thinking about Jesus going to the cross, and, and then Jesus flips it on them and says, all right, take up your cross and follow me. Now, I wonder if they wonder and... We wonder if that just means martyrdom. All right, we're all a bunch of martyrs. Folks, this sermon patched this week 
because of the television. I, I know we used to, those of us who are old enough, saw the Vietnam War and we saw other things, but this has been horrific to watch apartment buildings just blow up in front of our eyes and to see people running for their lives and mothers with babies hiding in, in, in subways. And what struck me was the Christians who lined up and sang hymns echoing through the subways and others praying. Not all, not all Ukrainians, although it's quite, quite a Christian country with the Orthodox churches, the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, the Catholic Orthodox, whatever Orthodox they were. There are many Christians, Evangelicals, Pentecostals, there are many people, but I realize that's not everybody. But it just struck me, the suffering again, the persecution in a way. And I want to remind people, they were trying to tell me, and I kept slipping up on this, that there's a film on sabinamovie.com, which today is the last day, sabinamovie.com, which you can watch the story of persecution in Eastern Europe some decades ago. It's put out by Voice of, Voice of the Martyrs. Today is the last day if you want to look at Sabina. I've been thinking about persecution. Jesus taught his followers that they should expect persecution. Anybody want to leave now? And the book of Acts and the letters of the New Testament affirm this. Jesus even said in his beloved Beatitudes, blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he said so starkly in John, the gospel, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We know that Saul dished out persecution, and then he got his share of persecution after he became a follower of Jesus. And he goes on to say, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Yes, there is a cost to discipleship. And that includes risking our lives for Jesus. Most have heard the famous words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany. When Christ calls a man, he calls them to come and die. We'd say when Christ calls a person, he calls them to come and die. I thought this week back to the 1970s when I was a new pastor and the stories that were coming out of Uganda. It's a part of history that we haven't heard much recently. We've, we rehearsed Uganda's an up-and-coming country. But there's a time when a terrible military man, Idi Amin, disposed the previous president and became a dictator in Uganda. Some of you remember those days. And he willy-nilly just killed people. Anybody who was his enemy, he killed. We know characters like this, unfortunately. And once his, uh, some of his soldiers had a rebellion, and uh, they were going to try to get rid of him, and he got rid of them by the thousands. Machine guns, mow them down. And the Church of Uganda, the Anglican Church, is very strong in Uganda. And I remember names like Festo Kavengeri, the great Christian who escaped. He was the assistant to the archbishop. And we heard the story of the archbishop of Uganda named Janini Lulum. And I know it sounds, you can hardly even hear what that word is, L-U-L-U-M. He was the archbishop. And he kept 
you know, very close to the government because of the Church of Uganda, and he would go to the formalities, and he would, and even his Christians said, what are you doing being friends with that Idi Amin? I said, he said, I'm not being a friend. I'm telling him he should stop. I'm telling him he's doing wrong. I'm warning him. I'm telling him to stop this. But finally, it was enough for Idi Amin, and he planted weapons in the, the bishop's house and then had his soldiers go find the weapons. And therefore, he had a cause, we call it the false flag theory, you know. I, I have to arrest this guy. So he arrested the bishop and several of his other people, put him in jail. And then his trial, he couldn't even answer or say a word. He just shook his head. I, he denied what they claimed. And uh, so he was arrested. And then suddenly, because he spoke up again, he was swept away from the others who, who were in jail. And uh, they were left behind. And, and he said to them, do not be afraid. I see God's hand in this. And he disappeared. And the car was found an accident. And the government itself, Idi Amin, buried him. And nobody knew how he died. But later, his bishops, his friends, his people went and found the grave and dug it up and found his body was full of bullet holes. And they brought him back to the capital, to the cathedral grounds, and they dug a grave and they buried him. And against all the edicts of the dictator, 4,000 people were there. And as he was buried, one of the bishops cried, he's not dead, he has risen, claiming that he's going to rise again. And all 4,000 started singing, or thousands, I don't remember the exact number. And all over the hills of Kampala, the Christian hymns were singing on that day. But you know what? That martyrdom of Lulam woke up the world and an army was raised in Tanzania and they went across the border and disposed of Idi Amin and those days of darkness and wickedness were ruined. You know what, 20 years before, 29 years before when, when the bishop was converted, he said this, 20 years before his death, more than 20, I'm prepared to die in the army of Jesus as Jesus shed his blood for people, if it is God's will, I will do the same. Imagine that, a new convert. Now, that's the cross and persecution, but there's more to the cross than just dying, and I find it so clearly in the very familiar passage in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, a great hymn, we hear it a lot even from this pulpit, so I don't mind repeating it because it's a hymn of the church. Jesus made himself nothing. That's part of the cross. By taking the very nature of a servant, that's part of the cross. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given the highest name above all names. And you know the rest of the passage. So it dawns on me that bearing the cross is displaying the character of Jesus in our daily lives. Choosing to model our lives after Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's cross-bearing. What did Jesus do? Serving, he washed his disciples' feet forgiving. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Selflessness and compassion. Let the little ones come to me. Sit them down. I want to feed them. 
Do it unto the least of these, my brothers. You've done it unto me. Look at Jesus. Look at his cross-bearing. And I could say a lot of other things, what I think Jesus' life in us looks like, the cross looks like. Whether you win, and I didn't know if we were going to have a, a sectional win to announce today for, for, for our basketball teams. We don't. They lost. In winning and losing, a gracious spirit. Not backbiting, not defending ourselves. Selfless denial, not just during Lent. We deny our chocolates during Lent. I'm denying Facebook, except I slipped already. Anyway, I'll try to get back to it. That's not bearing our cross. It's a lifestyle of living like Jesus. It's not simple. It's not ordinary. It's not even common today in our world. It's a different way of life. And I want to see our children, our young people, our college students, parents, seniors, singles. Did I leave any of you out? All of our congregation, not merely wearing golden crosses or giving up chocolates, but bear Christ's character in everything we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. A little book came in the mail to me last week from Christianity Today. It's a group of Lenten devotions, and they're all on different hymns of the church. And the first one was, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and thus we have a sermon today. The, the author of the first chapter, Jay Kim, he's a Korean-American pastor, says the cross is the great revealer, exposing the temporary stuff of earth and directing our hearts and minds towards the everlasting substance of eternity. Human value systems are upended. Worldly riches and pride in our self-sufficiency, vain pursuits, all these and more lose their splendor and their shine in the shadow of the cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. My richest gain I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. His cross, my friends, gains us freedom from sin and gives us eternal life. Our cross, brothers and sisters, reflects his life and leads us to glorious hope and a reward someday. We are actually the real thing. Jesus for the world to see if we take up the cross and follow him. That's why we sing the last verse. And I did change the program today, so get ready. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Pray with me. Lord, we almost don't even dare look at the truth of the gospel, the cross. And we shudder and squirm at the fact that we are to bear your cross, bear our cross. But help us today to boldly, with the power of the Holy Spirit, determine to live the life of Jesus 
before the world. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.